Amen. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 63 this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to go ahead and grab that and join me there. We're in Psalm 63. We're kind of jumping around the Psalms here uh, this summer. Last, If you haven't noticed, last week we were in Psalm 127. This week we're in Psalm 63. Next week we're going to be in Psalm 98. So there's your little preview for next week. We're in Psalm 98. Uh, we're just ch- Here's what we're doing. We're just chasing after the Lord and His Word to us uh, throughout this summer. So if you will, would you just stand with me now as we look to the Lord to speak to us today uh, by His Word. <clears throat> this is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I think the most simple prayer and plea of my heart this morning is just that you would speak so that we could hear you. That in every possible way, you would move me with all my fear, with all my doubt, with all of my, with all of my weakness. Oh man, with all of my timidity. Would you just move me aside Today, I mean, and I'm praying that because I want to hear from you and I want your people to hear you in your word. Not me, not my thoughts, not my, but hear you. Lord, we need you to do that. We are desperate for that this morning, even if we don't realize that we are. Or we are thirsty for you. We pray that you would speak. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. It took me a little while uh, to realize this, and it's really a testament, uh, I mean, I mean mean this, it's really a testament to Laurie's great patience with me, but I tend to be uh, sort of of a classic overthinker, all right? That's my, I'm pretty sure that explains the hairline, by the way. Um, I'm just a classic overthinker overthinker. And it's not always the big things. Like it's not always the big things in life. My overthinking usually manifests itself in the like really little seemingly mundane things of life. Um, So like I don't know if there is a more paralyzing question 
that you can ask me, then, then, then like, what do you want to eat? Like, like I, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not making this up to try and have a sermon illustration, all right? I, that's one that gets me every time. Just this past Monday night, uh, we were in a restaurant. I had the menu in my, by the way, I didn't pick the restaurant because I'm terrified of doing that. But anyway, I, had the, I literally had the menu in my hands. The, 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 the sweet waitress is looking at me. She's asked the question, right? Uh, waiting patiently for me to answer. And for just a moment, like in a moment that felt like an eternity, you know what I mean? Like it's really not, but it feels like an eternity. I was frozen. And it, here's the thing though. Like it wasn't like the menu was overly complicated. I think this actually makes it worse. Like this wasn't Cheesecake Factory or somewhere like that. Like Laurie knows better than ever take me to a place like that. I mean, I'd, I'd, see, I'd need a bookmark and a highlighter. I'll come back to this thing later and revisit it. I would never be able to get through that thing. But I was just, there was like seven items listed on this menu. And I was just frozen. Frozen. The lady is standing there and I'm acting like, I'm, here's what it, I'm acting like this is going to be the last meal I'm ever going to eat. Anybody, like, does that, I, I, I might be the only one, I hope I'm not. Like, you go, if I choose wrongly here, this is going to impact everything that could possibly come out. Like, we're going to be in a tragic accident on the way home, and, and, the, and the EMT is going to arrive and be like, oh, man, that, he chose what effort? Like, no, nah, don't even help this guy. Like, just let him, let him go, all right? And I know that's like, listen, I, 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 I know it's irrational, like, I don't need you to come up to me after and be like, listen, man, you need to call. I know, it's just, I'm working on, I really am, I'm working on it. One of the difficulties that I've had with Psalm 63 this week is that it asks a far greater question than that one. It asks a far heavier question than what do you want to eat. You see, the question that Psalm 63 asks is, is it's bigger than dinner. It, it's, it's, it's bigger than paint colors. It's bigger than like, like something. So it's, like, it's, like, it's bigger than any of those paralyzingly trivial questions that we might wrestle with. Because what Psalm 63 asks of us, it's asking this of you and me today, just by virtue of the fact that we are in this room or watching online or whatever we're doing, it's asking. It, it's really more than it's asking. It's sort of demanding an answer to this question. All right, are you ready? It is, what do you want in life? Like that's the question that Psalm 63 is getting after. It's a question that brings, and it's a question that brings with it all the potential for overthinking it. But, but what David does, and I love this about David. I love this about Psalm 63. What David does, what the Word of God does here, is he simplifies it and he gets right to the heart of that ultimate question. And he does it right there in verse one. Like he answers the big question in verse one, where he says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And we can't miss this, okay? To seek, to seek is to search for. It's to try to get at something. It's to reach for something. That's what seeking 
is, some, some of you may have heard that I, this is going to sound ridiculous to some of you, and some of you are going to be like, oh, that explains where he's been. Some of you may have heard that I started uh, coaching football this year at Irmo High School. Um, it's a very new thing, uh, something that I wasn't, I, I definitely wasn't like looking for a way to spend what has become way more hours than I expected, but, but I was invited into that community of coaches and players and our leaders here for months. We prayed through and, 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 and sought advice and just kind of looked at it, and, and our leaders here encouraged me to go for it. And, it, and it, listen, it's been quite a learning experience for me and a chance to, here's what it's been, it's been a chance for me to engage in our community in a, in a meaningful and consistent way. And... and um, and I did, but that wasn't meant to be a secret that was kept, by the way. If you've like heard this was happening, you're like, well, how do they haven't told? It's because I'd really, honestly, I just kept waiting for them to tell me to stop showing up. <laughs> like, like, dude, I don't know if you're cut out for this um, because that's the prevailing thought I have pretty much every day. Anyway, one of the, one of the drills that we do in practice, uh, both as a means of conditioning and as a means of learning to take the right angles is what we call a pursuit drill. It's, it, that's what it is. It's what we call it pursued. It's right there at the beginning of practice. And the defensive player, here's what happens. The defensive player is challenged to lay on their back facing the wrong direction. So they're laying on their back facing the wrong direction. The offensive player is given a football and told to run 100 yards in a straight line. And the defensive player's one objective is to get onto his feet and chase down the offensive player. It's a pursuit drill. And what we tell them is that nothing else in the entire universe, now this is a little bit heretical, but stick with me, it's for football. All right, we tell them nothing else in the entire universe matters in this moment than you figuring out the best way to get the right angle to tackle that man as he's running down the field. And it is so funny, they're not actually supposed to tackle because they're not wearing pads yet, but the defensive players get so psyched out of their minds that when they actually catch them, they just tackle them anyway, and the offensive players hate it because... We hate being tackled. That's, that's, that's why they play offense. Anyway, that's their one desire. That player with that ball is the only thing that we want you to care about in the entire universe for this probably uh, 12 seconds that it's going to take for this drill to last. And that's what David is saying here, that this is his one thing. That's what it means to seek the Lord. It's to run after him with that sort of reckless abandon is to reach for him, is to pursue the Lord. And we need to know, here's what we need to know. We need to know that David's circumstances right here, they aren't great, okay? Like he's not hanging out in the palace, just sort of eating grapes all day. He's not in the comfort of Jerusalem with his little Torah, getting up early and doing his quiet time and just kind of journaling away. He doesn't have his like favorite candles sitting over there. Okay, that's not his, maybe that's your thing. I don't know. But anyway, he's just, he's not just listening to worship music play as he drives around all morning, getting his head right. No, the heading at the top of this, if you look at right before verse one, it says that this was when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so he's not camping either. No, he's in the wilderness. The wilderness is geographical. It's a physical place. And that David is outside of the city. He's outside of the community. The wilderness is uncultivated. It's untamed. The wilderness is unsafe. 
Like he's truly in the wilderness, but there's more to it because in Scripture, the wilderness also has this, also has this spiritual sense to it of being, of being untethered from the Lord. That's what the wilderness is. It's both this geographical place, but it's also this spiritual reality of being disconnected from God. Most scholars agree that this is the season that we read about in 2 Samuel uh, uh, chapters 15 through 17. It's this really dark season of, of David's life where his son Absalom has, has conspired against him. He's conspired against his dad to take the throne. He has manipulated the people. He sort of played them and strategically endeared himself to them. Uh, 2 Samuel 15, 6 says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And then David is run out of town. He's run out into the wilderness. And so we need to grab hold of this true context from which this psalm is coming. David has abandoned his God-appointed throne. He's abandoned his God-given home. He's abandoned his God-established city. And he has abandoned the temple, which is the dwelling place of God. He's left all that. His world is, his world is truly upside down in this moment. And listen to what he says one more time. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. He isn't seeking a warm shower. He's not seeking a warm meal. He isn't seeking a night in his own bed. He is seeking the Lord. And he even goes on to describe his experience by saying, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Listen, this isn't hyperbole. We, we need to be careful here. Like we do a great injustice to what is happening in this passage is if we drift over into thinking that David, that, that David's just being melodramatic. If we think that David is just, if we think that David's just in his feelings. The truth is he's probably underselling his reality here. His situation is critical. There's nobody in this room who would trade. There is nobody in this room who, if you knew David's situation, who you would trade even the darkest nights of your soul for what David is in right now. And some of you will understand exactly what he, what he means when he says, my soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you. Some of you know that spiritual wilderness all too well. You know what it's like to feel distant from the Lord. You, like, you know what it's like to feel abandoned by the Lord, to be in that moment of struggle, to be in that moment of loss, to, to, to be in that, that moment of aloneness that, that falls over every aspect of your life. So that, so that when you wake up, you don't want to eat. That you don't want to be around friends. You don't want, like, you've been in the dark. Some of you have experienced the darkness that this world brings and the feeling of being apart from God to the point where you don't want to come to church and be seen and be known because you're in that wilderness spiritually. The outside is, is pretty put together, but, but it, the inside, man, the inside's a mess. Now, some of you, here's the other side of that. Some of you might think that David sounds like a lunatic in this passage. Like, knowing what he's lost, we're like, bro, bro, go get your army. Go get your game plan together and go get your kingdom back, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the cry of the world? Go and reclaim what is 
yours. Man, reclaim that throne. Take back what is rightfully yours. That's the movie we want to see play out. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the material stuff. Like we think of the houses lost. We think of the the comfort lost. We think of the cars wrecked. We think of the distracted by... We are so distracted by the shiny things around us. We get caught up in the daily job. Here's what we do. We get caught up in the daily job of keeping up with the Joneses. But David isn't lamenting the, uh, the loss of the throne. He's not lamenting the loss of his power or prestige or his privilege. He's not lamenting a broken dream of success and personal glory. He's lamenting the feeling of separation from his God, a separation that feels like he's dying of thirst. That's the cry of his heart. And the next verse tells us why. Here's what verse verse 2 does. It tells us why that is. Here's what it says. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 4 says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The, the first part of this passage is what we, might, what we might call the soul's thirst, right? It's an image of that thirsty soul in the wilderness. That's verse 1. It's a thirsty soul. And verses 2 through 8 are what, we, what we're going to call the soul's satisfaction. That's what we see here. We have the thirst and then we have the, the satisfaction. This, this isn't a, and, and so what that means is Psalm 63 is not like a, like his situation hasn't changed in the middle here. All right? This isn't a before and after psalm that he's writing here. He's not back home. Like he didn't write verse 1 and then put the pen in the journal away for a couple of years and then revisit it and go, oh, now here's my situation today and I can say this. Okay, he's not back there. He's still, uh, people are still hunting for him. We'll see down in verse 9 that people are still seeking to destroy his life. Okay, David is still in the wilderness. That's his geographical reality. And we need to remember that, right? And, and, and so what we have, what, here's what we have in verses 2 through 8, is really we have the reason for verse 1. That's what verses 2 through 8 are. They're, they're the reason that David can say what he has said in verse 1. You see, the reason that we have the expression of lament in verse 1 is because David has experienced the reality of verse 2. Verse 2 is the fuel of verse 1. As he's stuck in the wilderness of separation from God, and as he's crying out to the Lord in prayer, what happens is he remembers. This is a powerful thing that happens in prayer. It's one of those critical elements that happens when we come before the Lord in prayer. It's that in prayer, when we're in true communion with God, we're reminded of one of the, one of the things that, and I believe it's a supernatural thing, one of the things that God does for us in prayer is that He reminds us of who He is and what He's done. I think that's what we see happening here in Psalm 63. It's that, it's that there's, there's something about calling out to God in our time of need, not keeping that trapped in, not keeping that inside, but, but calling out to God, crying out to God, confessing our present situation to Him that reminds us of what He has done for us in the past. That's a grace 
I would say it's a neglected grace of prayer. David has experienced communion with God. That's been part of his story. He's been in the sanctuary with him. He's experienced God's power and glory in his life. It's it's like David knows what it's like to be filled. He knows what it's like to be in communion with God. And he can't think of anything else. It's his highest priority. It's his deepest longing. One author describes this as, and I didn't didn't like this description at first, but the more I thought about it, I I think the reason I didn't like it is because because of my own weakness. But one one author describes this as a consuming addiction to God. And the contrast here is, is with what so many of us are willing to settle for in our own relationships with the Lord, where if we're honest, it's often little more. Little more than a convenient addition to our ordinary lives. Our relationships with the Lord is often little more than a convenient addition to our daily lives. It's an hour on Sunday. It's a prayer before a meal. It's a fish on our car or a wedding and a church is just a cursory addition to our weekly schedule that cost us nothing. Sorry, that sound angry. I'm angry at me, okay? So don't, don't hear me shouting at you if, if you can. I, I'm angry at me because all too often in my life, my relationship with the Lord is just tacked on wherever I have a moment left in my schedule. If I can get to that, I will. But if not, there's grace, so I'll get back to him tomorrow. Some of you are like, yep, I've said that exact same thing. The same author said this. He said, we conveniently add God onto all sorts of other people and things that we love in our lives. And he gives a list. Family, health, work, money, success, sex, sports, exercise, food, and a host of other things. I mean, we have to be honest here. When we're asking the question, what do you want in life? We need to look at what we're pursuing in this life. Like there is evidence to answer this question for us. And so for some of us, again, what David's saying here, it sounds crazy because we're not chasing after that. But the reality is that what he's expressing, and I'm about to make you real uncomfortable, I hope. What he's expressing is just base level Christian faith. Like he's not getting into the complexities. He's not getting into the nuances of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's not, he's not parsing other Psalms here. He's not, he's not, well, in the Hebrew. No, he's not doing any of that. He's going base level relationship with the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said over in Luke 14? You're like, no. Over in Luke 14, here's what Jesus is talking about. Uh, there's a great crowd that is gathered around them. We don't know exactly how many people were there, but it was enough to make an impression. And Jesus, right, in a room full of people or on the hillside full of people, people of all kinds of different walks of life, people of different, all kinds of different socioeconomic standings, people of all different political persuasions, people who voted this way and who voted that way, people who did all the different, and this whole big room, a great crowd of people. And Jesus is there. 
And here's what he said to this great crowd of people with all those varieties of of upbringings and, and different families and different traditions and different expectations. Here's what he said. If anyone comes to me, so when Jesus starts saying, if anyone does something, that's when it's like, buckle up. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I didn't hear anybody amen that one. Now here's the temptation for me. Right? Ready for my transparent heart in this moment? The temptation for me is to try and soften what he's saying. It is. I want to I I soften that. That seems too much. I want to tread carefully here in this moment because I don't want, here's what, I don't want to neuter what Jesus is saying. I don't want to rob it of its essence, okay? But I also think we need to realize that he's speaking in a sort of hyperbole for effect. And I think Eugene Peterson has a fair summary of what Jesus is saying that, that, that doesn't get lost in the nuance. Okay, He says, here's his sort of translation or his paraphrase of this. He says, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, can't be my disciple. The Old Testament in the Hebrew, they use that word hate to describe something less than. That's what it means. It's going compared to, to compare to your love for me, everything else needs to look like hate. And what is, the, what is he saying? That unless that's the case, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, Jesus is talking about a complete commitment to him. He's talking about a consuming passion for him. He's saying that being his disciple means loving him with such a reckless abandon that all other loves seem incomplete and small in comparison. Here's it. Jesus will not accept being a convenient addition to your life. He will not. And so the question we're after is still, what do you really want in your life? Like, do you want grace? Yeah. Yeah, I want grace. Do you want mercy? Absolutely. Do you want love? Mm-hmm. Do you want heaven? I'll take that. Or, at least primarily, do you want God? Like, do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? I've heard it said that it's dangerously easy for any of us to love family and health and hobbies and homes and all sorts of things and even to thank God for these things yet not actually love God. But, but here's what David understands. And, and listen, if, you, if this seems completely crazy to you, please don't, don't check out yet, okay? Don't check out yet because I haven't even told you why you should love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So if you're like, oh, I'm out. Stay with me just a few more minutes. David understands that the deepest longings of his heart, the greatest desires, the strongest and most transcendent desires aren't going to be satisfied in the things of this world because he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's like C.S. Lewis said in, in Mere Christianity. I love this quote and This isn't a philosophy class, but I love this quote. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. All right, so 
If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Because where would those desires come from? And so Christ comes, right? Here's what, here it is. Christ comes from another world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He comes from another world into our world. Jesus came into our sin-stricken, broken world with all of its pain, right? We don't, there's no denying that exists. With all of its conflict, with all of its prejudice, with all of its loss, with all of its death, with all of its fear, with all of its uncertainty. He came into the world, and here's what John 3.17 says. So not 3.16, we love 3.16, but 3.17 too. We keep coming back to this throughout the Psalms, that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, Jesus didn't need to condemn the world. It already stood condemned. It was condemned on its own. And, and that, listen, that's our default position right? From the moment of our conception. Psalm 51 says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in guilt. That's how I came into the world. Like that's the, and that's the bad news, right? That is, that's truly the bad news. And because of that bad news, we have this thirst for something, a desire for something that no amount of money, no amount of sex, no amount of comfort or anything else, not the right apartment or the greater house or, or the nicer car, that, that the healthy kids or the beautiful spouse, none of, that none of that can satisfy as much as we want it to. It cannot do it because there's a desire for something that, that none of that can satisfy. And, and David knew this, man, and he tried it. Like if you look at David's life, and I'm sorry, I love you, you're not the king. If you are, please tell us. We will ask you for a charitable contribution. But unless you're the king, you'll never get one of those letters from us. If you're the king, you officially are on notice. You're getting a letter. Now, David was the king. The king of what? A nation. You're not. So he could try it. Like, he could give it a legitimate shot. He's like, you know what? I think I'll try more money. And he did. And he built storehouses and storehouses. And he said, you know, I'll try more sex. And he walked out there and there's Bathsheba taking a shower. And he's like, I'll take that one. Which, by the way, not a bright moment in David's life. Anybody who tries to hang that on Bathsheba is wrong, by the way. Although, ladies, please, for the, <laughs> let's not shower on the rooftops these days. Okay, I'm just telling you, not the way to start a relationship. Okay, but that's all on David. David saw and he took. Because he could, because he's the king. So he tried it, man. And the only thing that has satisfied the longings of his soul is being in the presence of God. And because he's tasted and seen, look at what he says. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He says, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And all the Presbyterians just got a little uncomfortable. But we see these declarations. All these I will statements. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Look down at verse 7. Remembering the presence of the Lord. He says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Our worship 
is meant to be loud. It is. We, we, some of us are too quiet. I remember meeting with a modern hymn writer one time. Whatever, I'm quoting him. It was uh, Keith Getty, who we sing a lot of the songs that they write, and I happened to be invited to this thing. I had no business being there, but they let me in the door for some reason, and we're sitting there with him, and, and we're talking about modern worship. And, and a local uh, direct, and we're specifically talking about congregational singing. That was the main topic, like, whatever, this is what we talk about. Oh, Andrew, you're going to be in these conversations. It's going to be a lot of fun. And a local worship director asked this guy, what do you do? When people, and he specifically mentioned the men in the church, right? What do you do when they don't sing? And this, and Keith Getty, he, he, gave, he, gave a few, like, he gave a few responses. He was like, you, you need to choose good music. I mean, that was, that was like, like, choose songs that are actually good. He said, uh, you need to introduce the music well, so don't just throw it out there and expect it to hit. And, and he said, you need to pick singable and accessible keys for them to sing. So he went through this whole list of like pragmatic things that we can do, all things that we, that we try to do. Here, I mean, we've literally taken what he said in that little meeting and we've tried to put it in place because I think he, he knows what he's talking about. Then he paused. He gives this whole list of like pragmatic things that, we're, that we should do. And, and it was more than a pause. Like you could see it in his face. You know, like there's a pause, but then there's also, sometimes there's a hesitation. There's a thought like, should I, should I say this? And he goes, but even if, here, here's what he said. He says, but even if you do all of that right, even if you do everything right. You can have the best music with the best band people and the best voices and the best key and the best production. You can have the best lighting and the best smoke machines, but no smoke machines coming, all right? Now, what no like, that, ain't, that is fundamentally not happening, all right? Despite Fred's best efforts, all right? <laughs> Even if you do everything right, the reality is, here's what he said, Dead men don't sing. And the room went silent as we all took inventory of that reality. That dead men don't sing. You see, maybe our worship is too quiet because we don't really love the one that we're worshiping. When we come to know the Lord, when we come to love the Lord, to trust the Lord. We can't help but give praise to the Lord. We can't help but to praise His name with our lips, even even if we're in the moment of loss, even if we're in the moment of doubt, even if we're in that moment of pain, even if we're out in the wilderness of life. We're always, here it is, we're always under the shadow of His wing. And that's our soul's satisfaction. It's being at home under the shadow of his wings. Now here's verse 9. We're going to do this quick. I'm sorry. He says this. But, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. We have the soul's thirst. We have this declaration of the soul's satisfaction and here at the end, we have the soul's victory. 
And just like David looked back at his time with the Lord, just like how he remembered in his time of prayer, so we today, you and I, can look back. We look back to the true and better temple, right? We look back to Jesus, to the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the heart of the gospel. We had the bad news and that we come into this broken world, broken ourselves, and here we have the good news that Jesus came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. It's not that God helps those who help themselves, but that in Christ he came to help those who couldn't help themselves. He came to give his life. Like he came to to die in our place. Psalm 40 says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This is what God does for us in Jesus. This is what He has done in Jesus. This is what we have received. If you have trusted in Him for your eternal life, man, he, this is what you have received in Jesus. This is what we proclaim in Jesus. It's that our good shepherd has us presently, right now, regardless of your circumstances. He has you in His hand that He is covering you with the shadow of His wings. Like even when our world is crumbling around us. We can still hear his voice. He says, here's what our good shepherd says to us. He says, I give them life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want you to hear this. God's love is better than life because his love lasts longer than life. Like that's the simple reality of the love of God for his people. The simple reality of the love of God for you. That you in Christ have this inexpressible gift. And in Christ we have a worship-worthy giver. My prayer for us, to borrow a cliched-out Christian phrase, is that we, as a church, would fall more and more in love with our God and with our Savior. That's what I want in this life. And just know if you invite me to dinner, you probably have to choose the restaurant. (laughs) Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir up in us a holy affection for you, that you would help us to remember who you are and what you've done, that in the watches of the night as we lay in our bed and meditate on you, that you would remind us of who you are and what you've done. Father, would you do that for me today, this week, each day as we, as we go about the busyness that we have constructed Help us not to lose sight of who you are, what you've done. May we find our joy in you. May our lips praise you. Father, even as we close out this service, help us to practice it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.